like to all welcome you to our Second Kings study. Uh, it's uh, a very, very good study, and there's a lot of great principles that we're learning. Um, but tonight's illustration, I wanted to talk about something that you may know about if you follow baseball. If you don't, you still may have heard about it. So in 2001, in March, so we're celebrating a hallmark here, 2001, during a spring training game between the Arizona Diamondbacks and the San Francisco Giants, Randy Johnson, a pitcher, now a Hall of Famer, stood on the mound facing Giants' Calvin Murray. Johnson threw a fastball, which he normally does. He was a Cy Young winner many years, had a great fastball, threw more strikes than balls, but he threw a fastball that would never make it to the plate. Instead, the ball came in direct contact with a bird flying across the path of the incoming ball. It all happened so fast that if it weren't for the announcer saying something in the microphone during the broadcast, most people would have missed it. When asked about it later, Johnson indicated that he saw something going across home plate. He then said that he spotted that this fastball hit the blur. Feathers went everywhere. At the time, he wasn't aware that the object in motion was a bird. By the time he noticed the movement, the fastball was already out of his hand, and it was too late. This incident actually wasn't being viewed on live television because this particular spring training game wasn't being aired. However, you can find footage of the incident online because it was caught on film and then aired at a later date. The aftermath of the incident was the fact that there was some fallback after Johnson hit the bird with the pitch. Although it was an accident, members of PETA were outraged, and the organization considered filing a lawsuit against Johnson for animal cruelty. Randy hired a lawyer, and PETA was never able to gain ground with their accusation. Although Johnson is in the National Baseball Hall of Fame, the incident is one that people still remember about him. He also chose the image of a bird as his watermark for his professional photography, which does show that the incident made an impression on him his whole life. Well, that's just a remarkable thing, and I actually did see the footage of that. Of course, I... I wasn't there at the time or wasn't on television at the time, but it wasn't long after that, and it was just, well, I mean, everybody was surprised. The, the, what, what I have to think about, though, is, you know, Randy Johnson could throw a fastball from 90 up to 100 miles an hour. That's pretty fast. I don't know how fast that bird was flying, but you have to think, what would be the odds of there's a straight collision course of the ball and the bird hitting at the same time. Now, the bird could have been a little higher, or Randy could have lost control and it went a little higher. Probably the bird would have had to go a little higher. Anyway, I'm thinking of just how that happens. Well, when we think about God, I think you should think of those things and then just 
think of an exponential number because all sorts of those things are happening because of God's sovereignty. We're going to see that in the book of Kings. We're going to see things, once again, what we call the providence of God or the invisible hand of God. And, you know, 190 mile an hour fastball and a bird certainly is no trouble for God if that's what God decided to do. But we see him working with these kings, both in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And we'll take a look at that uh, as one of our final applications. But I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 8, beginning in verse 24. And we're actually going to go into chapter 9. We're going to do some looking in 2 Chronicles because there are some other details that are in 2 Chronicles. And this is entitled, Ahaziah Replaces Jehoram. And again, I put an S behind them because they're from the southern kingdom. There's a lot of Jehoram's going around and Joram's and Ahaziah's. So I'm going to help us keep that all straight. But before we go any further, let's just bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you orchestrate as a sovereign God. And at this moment, we have to realize that even our salvation was orchestrated by you. The right time that we would hear the gospel, the right time that the person would bring the gospel, the right time that our heart would be open to the gospel, and you saved us, Lord. And we pray, Father, that our our faith will be totally in you, in your sovereignty of all things, but also of the lessons that we're going to learn tonight. Thank you, Father, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so just a little bit by review. Last time, we were in 2 Kings chapter 8, and we made it up to verse 24. And if you remember, one of the challenges was, even though we're talking about Elisha's ministry now, there was a reference to Elijah, that Elijah made some prophecies against Jehoram. Now, we said either God had led him to write this before he died, or not before he died, but before he was taken, or the timeline was enough that just enough time for Elijah to say these things to Jehoram as he became king. Either way, Elijah was prophesying something future. Elijah was given revelation from God. What were they? You remember the prophecies? The one prophecy was that great calamity would come upon Jehoram's family. And we find that that happened in 2 Chronicles 21. Jehoram would be stricken with the disease of the bowels, and he was. And then thirdly, the Lord would stir up Jehoram's enemies, and he did. And the fulfillment we talked about, again, in 2 Chronicles, we added 2 Chronicles to fill in the gaps with 2 Kings. The Lord did stir up Jehoram's enemies against him. And there was great calamity that came upon Jehoram's family. And Jehoram was stricken with a disease of the bowels. So now as we come to the end of that section, we find out that Jehoram died and 
If you will, look with me at 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 24. It says, So Jehoram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Ahaziah, his son, became king in his place. So two things I want to say about this. But the first thing is, we know we're talking about the southern kingdom because it's in Jerusalem where the city of David is. We know that Joram here is also the same as Jehoram, who is the son of Jehoshaphat and then has a son Ahaziah. So we'll keep that straight as we go through. The second thing that I want to say is if you look at other scripture, like in 2 Chronicles 21.20, I'll just read it. It said, he was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years, and he departed with no one's regret. Nobody was sad to see him go. And he was buried in the city of David, but he was not buried in the tombs of the kings. So you remember that? And this is Jehoram. And this is the father of Ahaziah. So we're going to pick it up, verse 25. (coughs) Pardon me. In verse 25, it says, In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel. Okay, so there is another Joram. And that's kind of a nickname of Jehoram. So two Jehorams with two nicknames, Joram. But how do you know the difference? Well, whose son are they? Well, he's the son of Ahab. And Ahab was this, was a king of Israel, which was the northern kingdom. So those are two separate kingdoms. Here's a, a picture of the divided kingdom. The section in blue is the northern kingdom. The section in orange is the southern kingdom. There's, it's Judah, and then also Jerusalem is in there. And we'll be looking at that in a moment. But this is how you decipher them, even if they have the same name. Now, it says, verse 25, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram. Oh, my word, who's that? King of Judah began to reign. So, It's pretty understandable. He's talking about now Joram, the son of Ahab. He's reigning as a king. And in his 12th year, that's when Ahaziah of the southern kingdom became king. And now now we're going to learn a little bit about Ahaziah. But before we do that, let me turn us to the chronology of the kings. Maybe this will help us. So we've been keeping track of the majority of them, some of them we have axed out so we could fit them on our chart. I, I guess that's how it goes sometimes. Well, uh, you see in the southern kingdom, you see Jehoshaphat, and he was a good king. And then his son was Jehoram, and he was not a good king, and he married Ahab's daughter. They had a son, several sons, but the one that took over for him was Ahaziah. Now, Let's go back to the northern side, this right-hand side. Notice, if you will, Ahab had a son, Ahaziah, but he was the king of the northern kingdom for just a year. 
And then another one of Ahab's son was Joram or Jehoram. And I said it'd be the same as if someone's name was William and you could call them William, but you might also frequently refer to them as Bill. Okay, it's the same name. And the, the scriptures here will refer to both of those names for the same person. And I think that's, actually, I think it's for less confusion just to show that both names are used for both of those individuals. All right, and then what's going to happen is we're not only going to see Ahaziah, but we're going to see Jehu come into the picture. So he is nobody's son. Well, he is somebody's son, but he's not anybody famous. He's not Ahab's son or Ahaziah. He is a son. He's the son of Jehoshaphat, but not the Jehoshaphat of the southern kingdom. All right? He is a captain, and he is going to be chosen by the Lord. This is where we're going. I'm trying to put the big picture together. All right. Back to 2 Kings chapter 8. Now that we have all of these names to confuse us, look at verse 26. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king. And he reigned one year in Jerusalem. That's all, one year. And his mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. So what you have here is someone in the southern kingdom who is now related to someone in the northern kingdom, and they were always to remain separate. So now we have mixed blood. By the way, as you see over here in the southern kingdom, you have Jehoram. He married Athaliah. She was Ahab's daughter and Omri's granddaughter. And they had a son, Ahaziah. So even though he's from the southern kingdom, she's going to influence him to do evil and to have an ally position with the northern kingdom. All right, so one of the things I do want to point out is you, if, if you happen to be reading in your King James Version and you go to 2 Chronicles and you don't have to go there, but in 2 Chronicles 22.2, in the King James Version, it says that he became king when he was 42 years old. Now, a lot of these discrepancies are not discrepancies at all and they can easily be worked out. This one, however, seems the majority seem to call this what they call a copyist error. With just a little dash, you could change the number. And unfortunately, then, that error is recopied. Now, this is not life-altering. This is not doctrine-changing. This is something that they've recognized. John MacArthur writes, This is a copyist error easily made due to the small stroke that differentiates two Hebrew letters. So just in case you're following with the King James Version and you're looking at 2 Chronicles 22, you would say, wait a second, is this a problem here? It really isn't a problem. And um, everyone understands that from time to time there are copyist errors. Not many, not to, to make you shake in your boots, but I think it's right to point it out when we come across one. All right, so when we also take a look here at Ahaziah, not only was he 22, um, 
but he only reigned a year. And then how is it that he became the king? Because Jehoram did have other sons. Well, I'd like you to now turn to 2 Chronicles 22.1. In 2 Chronicles 22.1, it says, Then the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah his youngest son king in his place. For the band of men who came with the Arabs to the camp had slain all the older sons, So Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. So they had been dispensed of. They had been killed, but Ahaziah did not. So he's hanging on by the skin of his teeth, and he he makes a king. And it is interesting that we see the people making him king. And one would think, well, gee, maybe that, I mean, the people know who's righteous, The people know who should be the king. They ought to know who they ought to vote for on election day. But obviously they didn't. And I guess they just thought, well, because Jehoram was the king and Ahaziah is in his lineage, he should be the king. Well, they're going to find out that that is a mistake. Because as we look at Ahaziah, there's not a whole lot written, but enough to know that he was an evil king. He did evil before the Lord. All right, and before we even look at that, looking at his evil, I want to go back to verse 26, where it says, and his mother's name was Athaliah. So again, I've already said that Jehoram married her, kind of brought both of the kingdoms together, which God never wanted. He didn't want the kings of the southern kingdom to... uh, have strong relations with these kings of the northern kingdom because they set up the golden calf to worship. They were worshiping false gods over there, and it was to never be connected. Now, who was one of the ones that was instrumental in in keeping that going? Ahab. And Ahab married Jezebel. And Jezebel brought with her priests of Baal. And they influenced the kingdom and the king And I'm sure Ahab's daughter, which was Athaliah. And then she married Jehoram and influenced him. And we're going to see, and they influenced their children. You know, once again, we see the influence of parents. It's not to be underestimated. And this is something that whether a parent is trying to work at it or not, They are influencing their children by their lives and by what they say. So this is a time, I believe, that we as parents and grandparents need to double down. It is is not a joke anymore. It is not given uh, to, well, it'll work itself out. It's got to be doubled down. There has to be influence. You have to be very energetic and positive about a godly influence to your children. Otherwise, this can happen. This can happen what we see here, and it's going to affect the next generation. Now, we see also here in verse 27, notice it says, and he walked in the way of the house of Ahab. Well, of course he did. His mother was from the house of Ahab. Jehoram should have never married her. And... It's the idea, not just that he's from the household, 
when, when it's said that he walked in the way of the house, it means that he was following Baal just as much as the northern kingdom was, just as much as Ahab was, just as much as Jezebel was, just as much as his mother was. And so he walked in that way. That's the way he was trained. And it says, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab had done. And, and of course, you could say, well, there's a lot of other things that he might have done that were evil that Ahab did. But in 2 Kings, when it speaks like this, it's talking about worshiping Baal. It's talking about idolatry. This is what they were plagued with. And we see one king after another being influenced. Only a few stepped outside the box and obeyed the Lord. And at least there was hope on the the side of the southern kingdom. Now, not with Rehoboam, but with Asa. Asa was a good king. Jehoshaphat was a good king for the most part. But then when you have Jehoram, that's when it goes downhill. And it's because we can think because he married Ahab's daughter who brought in that influence. So this is something else that I want to talk about. You talk about young people wanting to get married. But you absolutely, absolutely, they must get married to a believer. And not only that, but you must train your children to be able to decipher who is a believer and who is not. This shouldn't be, well, I'm going to get married, but I'm going to leave it up to my parents or the pastor or the elders to figure out whether this individual is a believer. No, that is to be deciphered long before that. Not even to go down the road if you do not think the person is a believer. Or even if the person is a believer, what kind of believer? Do they care? Do they care about spiritual things? You know, when they get into the pastor's office for premarital counseling and he's going to talk to the men about being the spiritual leaders and doing devotional, it's a good thing if a guy doesn't look at you like a deer in the headlights, like, what are you talking about? That's not... That's not what you want. And the same thing for a man. Let's not just think it's young men who influence young women. We know it's young women who also influence young men. And so both both parties, both the young man and the young woman, they themselves have to be committed Christians, and they have to uh, commit to only marrying committed Christians. That is... The first and biggest recipe. All right, so this is the road then that that Ahaziah went down, and the Lord calls him out, says he was evil. We don't see a whole lot of everything that is uh, uh, mentioned, but enough is said that he's related to Athaliah, who's related to Ahab, and he was married to Jezebel. It's a one-way street to destruction. Now, We're going to see something that is going to happen here. And it's going to be there is another war at Ramoth-Gilead. And if you remember what happened before, Jehoshaphat, though he was a good king, he had a few flaws. And he was asked by Ahab to come and help him fight the war 
at Ramoth Gilead against the Arameans. And you remember how that turned out. <laughs> the first thing the first thing that happened was Ahab put the royal robes on Jehoshaphat. We call that in the hunting world a decoy. So that when they went against him, he would have been the one whose life was in jeopardy. And it almost was. They did come after them till he realized it. He exclaimed, I'm not who you're looking for. Well, they couldn't find Ahab, but a random arrow did. And he died at Ramoth Gilead. Well, now we're going to have another Ramoth Gilead. I mean, another occasion there. And it's going to be somewhat similar. So let's pick this up here in verse 28. It reads, Then he, that's Ahaziah, went with Joram, which one is it? The son of Ahab, northern kingdom, to war against Hazael, king of Aram at Ramoth Gilead. And the Arameans wounded Joram, that is the son of Ahab. So let me unpack this because there is a lot of things to consider. First of all, uh, we'll go back to this. We have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And then if you could see that yellow circle, that's Ramoth Gilead. There's a little bit closer. It's on the east side of the Jordan River. It's in the area of Jordan now. And this is where this took place in order to, we've got to stop them there. There's another close-up look there. Uh, Ramoth Gilead there on the eastern side on the right. This is pretty much the area that Elijah and Elisha have been ministering in. And so not only does it become a famous place because of the death of Ahab, but now we're going to see it's going to cause another death, another problem, if you will. But first of all, let's talk about Hazael. Do you remember Hazael? We talked about him not too long ago. Hazael is, is now king, but he wasn't always the king. He was the servant of Ben-Hadad II. And you remember he got sick, and Ben-Hadad said, Go to the prophet and see if I'm going to survive this sickness. And so Haziel goes down. And when he asks Elisha the question, Elisha said, he is not going to die from the sickness. <laughs> he could have said, he's going to die, but he's not going to die from the sickness. So Haziel goes back. The king says, well, what did he say? He said, well, you're not going to die of the sickness. And then he took a wet pillow and suffocated him. And he became the king. Now, if you also remember, while Haziel was talking to Elisha, Elisha began to weep. And Haziel said, why are you weeping? And here's the idea of a prophet who has been given the revelation of God. He said, I am weeping because I see all the terrible things that you are going to do to God's people. So this is that Hazael. So he's not a good guy in any stretch of the imagination, but 
this is who he was. Well, we find out later on, after Jehoshaphat goes up to help Ahab, and then he's, he's in kind of several of these things, and he gets rebuked by a prophet. And that's exactly what the prophet says. The prophet says, why are you uh, fellowshipping with these evil men who do not worship the Lord, even though they're from Israel? And so he was rebuked for that. I'm reminded of times when we think about us as not being unequally yoked with an unbeliever in marriage or in business. Now, does that mean that we cannot be friends with unbelievers or at least befriend them enough to share the gospel? No, we certainly can. But we can only go so far with that relationship. I mean, you can't be best friends because there's no major common agreement there with Christ. Well, as we're looking at this here, we're going to see the same thing. Ahaziah is going to ally with Joram, and he's going to do that to help him with the fighting. Um, if you would, turn to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 22, verses 5 and 6. So we'll be going back and forth. We read verse 28 of 2 Kings, which said, Then he, that's Ahaziah, went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to war against Hazael, king of Aram, at Ramoth-Gilead. And the Arameans wounded Joram. All right, now in 22, 5 and 6 of 2 Chronicles, it says he also walked according to their counsel. This is now talking about uh, how evil Ahaziah was. And he went with Jehoram. Now he's called Jehoram. It doesn't matter because as long as he's the son of Ahab, it's the northern kingdom. He went with Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, to wage war against Hazael, king of Aram, at Ramoth-Gilead. But the Arameans wounded Joram. Verse 6, so he returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds which they had inflicted on him at Ramah. When he fought against Hazael, king of Aram, and Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Jehoram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. So these are very similar to what we're reading here, but we know from verse 28 that Ahaziah went with Joram to Ramoth-Gilead. Joram was, was injured, wounded, and he left the battlefield, and it says he went to Jezreel. Now, I don't have Jezreel on here, but I have Jezreel Valley, and if you would look between the Jordan River and Jezreel Valley, that's where Jezreel would be. So that's where he went. He left the battle because he was wounded to heal. Then Ahaziah left the battlefield because he was still fighting, but he went to check on him. I doesn't say exactly why, but one would imagine it's because he wanted to find out how he's doing. He can't just check his Twitter account and find out. He had to actually go there. 
And when it says in Second Chronicles there, when it said that he went there because he was sick, the word can also mean weak. So he was wounded and weak. Maybe he lost a lot of blood. I don't know. But it was something that, you know, it wasn't something that he could stay in battle. It was something that he had to go away, be protected, and survive. And perhaps Ahaziah was concerned about his kin of the opposite kingdom. So he went, and he went to see him. Um, Let's read 29. So King Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds which the Arameans had inflicted on him at Ramah when he fought against Hazael, king of Aram. Then Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. Now, this is going to become a little interesting because we're going to read a little bit more about Ahaziah, but not right now. Second Kings is going to go right into chapter 9, and it's going to start to talk about Jehu. And I suppose we're wondering, why in the world is it doing that? Well, it's all going to fit together. And you're going to see it's like someone who is telling a story, only these are true events, and it's a narrative. And it's, here, this is what's happening. He goes down to Jezreel. And guess who else is going to go to Jezreel? Jehu, who has been called by God to put an end to the house of Ahab, which would be Joram, and Ahaziah is going to be there, and he is going to be killed till. So now I told you, that was a, a spoiler alert. But how do we get there? Well, it's so interesting. It's as if this stops at this point, because it does, and we are now going to talk about God calling Jehu through Elisha. That's in verse 1. And I think we could probably get down to verse 13 on this. Um, now, as we do that, I just want to say this whole idea of Ramoth Gilead, when I was in Israel, I wasn't in Jordan. And so that's on the Jordan side. Dave was uh, on the Jordan side and get to see some places, but he might not have gone up there. So, no, here it is now. If I ever get a chance, I'd like to see where both Ahab was killed and Joram was injured. You know, I, I, I will remember that. And, you know, there, this is what we call dramatic irony, where the situation is ironic. It's ironic that they both ally with the southern kingdom and both of them get, get injured, and of course Ahab dies there. Dramatic irony, number one, is when the story brings about an ironic thing that happens. We're going to see some other irony here. But you know what irony really is? It's the timing of God. It's the timing of a sovereign God with a 90-mile-an-hour fastball and a 40-mile-an-hour bird hitting at the same time. That's what irony truly is. All right, so let's pick it up then in verse 1. Now Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Gird up your loins and take this flask of oil in your hand 
and go to Ramoth Gilead. Now, I want to stop here a second. There's a lot of things going on besides the synapses going off in our brain. So here we have um, another action of the sons of the prophets. So here, one of the functions of the sons of the prophet was he was kind of like a servant or an attendant of the main prophet, which would have been Elisha. But when he goes to Ramoth Gilead and talks to Jehu, he is going to speak for the Lord. The Lord says, you have been anointed as king. So the sons of the prophets, uh, they could have been prophets in in training, some have said they would be servants of the of the main prophet, and then also too, the Lord could use them in that capacity to a small extent. Well, also what we see here is Elisha tells him to take a flask of oil and go to Ramoth Gilead. Now we already know what's going on at Ramoth Gilead. We already know. Uh, who was there, and we already know who went to Jezreel and where Jehu is going to go. This is all timing. In fact, there's like four fastballs and four birds being thrown at the same time. Verse 2, he says, When you arrive there, search out Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat. This is not the king Jehoshaphat because it gives his father's name, Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. All right, so, so he's not from the line of the southern kingdom. Um, he is a captain in the army, as we are going to see. His father's name was Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. And this is what he goes on to say, and go in and bid him arise from among his brothers and bring him to an inner room. So he's going to do that. This is the instruction. By the way, what I find interesting here is when he goes there, Jehu is going to be around his other captains. So here's what Elisha is seeing. Elisha is seeing the captains together, and he's going to go in and pull Jehu out, take him into a a secret place and talk to him. That's what we see. Now, I want to just say something else here. He says, and bring him to an inner room in privacy and secrecy. You know how I had said before, when you look at Elisha's ministry, there are a couple of things that he has done in secrecy. Not that it was evil and not that it was bad. It was just that God didn't want it fully proclaimed at that time. And let me just say this, that that's the way God does it sometimes. This is God's orchestration. This is God's prophecy. So for some reason, he doesn't want it known right away. We'll talk more about that at the end of this lesson. Verse 3, then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not wait. So we have to unpack this now. All right, so it says take this flask of oil, and usually olive oil, and this was the sign of God's anointing. This was the sign of God's inauguration. If you remember, that's what happened with David. That's what happened with all of these. And what's interesting is, is 
the Lord Jesus, he is the Christ. Christ means to anoint. He is the anointed one. He is God's anointed one as the Messiah. So all along in Israel's history, the one who is chosen by God is demonstrated by the symbol of the anointing of the oil. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the anointed one, God's chosen Messiah. Well, we see that, and he says, pour it on his head, and that's what they, they did. Um, now, if it was olive oil, uh, you know, you'd say, oh, my word, you know, that's like, you're not going to, like, put Crisco all over the guy, are you? So, I mean, olive oil is used for beauty aids and everything else there in Israel. It's a, it's a fantastic it's a fantastic nutrient, you know, this uh, olive oil. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, it wouldn't be something that would be too hard to get off. It says then, take it, pour it on his head, and then say this. Thus says the Lord. Now, Elisha is speaking for the Lord, but he's telling this attendant who is going to go speak for the Lord. And he's a son of the prophet. So we see another function of him. And this is what he says. I have anointed you king over Israel. Even while Joram is still alive, God is anointing his king, very much like David, very much like when David was anointed. Now, we're going to see this all fulfilled. And then the, the strange words Then when you're done with this, he's talking to his attendant. He says, open the door and run out of there and don't wait. And we could scratch our heads why he did this, um, but I'm not sure we're going to come up with any feasible answer, except that God wanted to work out the details like he always does. You remember when Elijah, uh, Elijah, and his ministry, and most of it was miracles. And, and of course, as he was doing these miracles, uh, doing great things for God through this miraculous, and then there came a time when God said to Elijah, go anoint somebody king. And we said, that was a time of a change of kind of like a dispensation. Now, God was going to work his providential hand through the kings and turning their hearts and moving and jockeying positions. So that's what we have here. Get out of the way. Um, God doesn't need our help. And sometimes we just need to get out of the way. We want to put our finger on everything. Don't worry, God. I've got it covered. I've dotted all my I's and I've crossed all my T's. And then God says, I's and T's weren't even in any of the words that I said. (laughs) All right, verse 4. So we actually see this happen. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth-Gilead. And when he came, behold, the captains of the army were sitting. So here it is, exactly what Elisha said. They're together. And he said, this is the attendant, I have a word for you, O captain. Now, they... They said, for which one of us? Which is a good question. And then the attendant is going to say, for you, O captain, identifying Jehu. 
Now, I can't help this. I can't pass this up. But he said, I have a word for you. So we hear today, we hear today that many people are saying, well, we, we need someone to come and speak to us who has a word from the Lord. Beloved, if you're an expositor of the word, you have a word from the Lord every week, and it's between those two leather bindings. This is prophetic. When, when people say those sort of things, well, that was a good word from the Lord, you had, you had, you're showing your ignorance of the Old Testament and of prophets and of prophecy. This is big stuff. He says, I have a word for you. What do you mean a word for you? A word from the Lord, from Elisha the prophet, and now I get to be the spokesman for Elisha, who is a spokesman for God. This is, this is not to be tampered with. So I, I, really don't, I really don't like that phrase, you know, a word from the Lord. If, if you want to say thank you for the word, for teaching the word, great. I appreciate that. But for someone to say, you know, hey, we need a word from the Lord. Well, then you know what? Go in your prayer closet, turn on the light, and open up the two leather bindings. And I don't mean to say that you'll be there and all of a sudden something will jump from the page to you and you'll go, oh, that's what you want me to do. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about reading, doing Bible study, understanding what the passage says, and then applying it to your life. If you can do that, you've got the Christian life mastered. And that's what we're all trying to attain to, that right there. So he says, I have a word for you, O captain. Jehu said, for which one of us? And he said, for you, O captain. He wants to talk to Jehu. Verse 6, chapter 7. And he arose and he went into the house. So they went into the center room, kind of done in secrecy. Nobody else is there. And he poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. Wow, that is incredible. And they are going to understand that this came from a prophet shortly. This is all going to come to public knowledge shortly. But God What God does in secrecy, he will eventually make public to the world. All right? Hold that thought. What is he going to do? Why is God choosing Jehu, the captain of of an army? Well, because the house of Ahab is dwindling down and it's about to be decimated. And Jehu is the one who's going to do it. And so he chooses Jehu. This captain, and look at what he says. This is what is the purpose of calling Jehu to be the next king over the northern kingdom. You shall strike the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. Ooh. But we're not done. Verse 8. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male person, both bond and free, in Israel. 
verse 9, I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. So the, the writing is on the wall, even though we're not in the book of Daniel. The writing is on the wall. And what also is happening is we know that when Jehu goes to decimate the house of Ahab because Ahaziah is there and he never should have been there in the first place, it's going to cost him his life. But that is not a mistake. That's another fastball and a bird because of the things and the evil that Ahaziah has done. God's going to get two birds with one fastball. Here we go. All right, so he's going to avenge the blood of the prophets uh, who were martyred. Remember all the prophets that she murdered? Um, God is now going to avenge their blood. Secondly, he's going to end Ahab's lineage. Remember how we were talking about that uh, some of these kings, their lineage is going to come to an end. That way, they are in no way going to be able to have the Messiah come through their line. And then, I don't know if you remember, but we're going to see the presence and the reoccurrence of the canine prophecy of the dogs eating. You remember we talked about that and there were several of the canine prophecies? Well, here's Jezebel. You know, Elijah said that. Elijah put her under the canine curse. And it's going to come through to, to fruition where Jehu will orchestrate the death of Jezebel her body will remain in the streets, and the dogs will come and eat her. All right, so this takes us all the way up to, or down to verse 10. Let's read verse 10. The dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. And then watch this. Then he opened the door and fled. And there, you know, you've got to be thinking, what in the world is going on? He was in he was in this room with the captain, Jehu. Next thing you know, he comes running out. Well, look at the response here. And it's kind of interesting. I, I think we see a little bit more of irony here, but, uh, you know, we just have to go through it. Verse 11. Now, Jehu came out to the servants of his master, and Wud said to him, Is all well? Is all well? Why did this mad fellow, this madman, come to you and we have to stop here for a moment because why why did they refer to this son of the prophet as a madman well it could be because he ran out of there like a madman the other reason is is because we could see the spiritual decline in the people of israel and and they no doubt knew he was a prophet of some sort Number one, they dressed the part of a prophet, and they were probably were familiar with the sons of the prophets. Um, and so it probably shows the spiritual decline. Then what was that madman coming here for? Well, even though they said it as a pejorative term, let's listen to what Jehu responds with in verse 11. And he said, you know very well the man and his talk. 
Now, it's pretty hard to understand what he means by this is exactly why the number one communication is speaking. The number two communication is the wonderful writing and exact and detailed writing in the Bible to help you put this together. But sometimes you're going to have trouble. So the first thing he says is you know very well the man. So you know the man. You know that he was the son of the prophet. And I, I think it just goes to show that they were a little pejorative toward him. Now, Jehu downplays this. And I don't think it's out of disrespect. I actually think it's out of verbal irony. He possibly downplayed all of this to create curiosity in the captains. Oh, well, you know, you know. Nothing much happened, that kind of a thing. Well, look at their response, verse 12. And they said, it's a lie. Tell us now. You're playing with us. I inserted that. And he said, thus and thus he said to me, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. So Jehu answered that way and somewhat of verbal irony in order to get them to create curiosity and ask. And when they press him, he tells them that that was a son of the prophet sent by Elisha the prophet to anoint me as king. And it was God who anointed me as king. And then in a sense, just as puzzling as they made those comments about the son of the prophet, now their response is just as much a little hard to figure out. Look at verse 13. Then they hurried and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet saying, Jehu is king. If they didn't like the prophet, if they thought the prophet was a madman, why are they going after the madman's prophecy? Well, perhaps... What it is, is that as captains of the military, they're always looking for an insurrection. Oh, there's going to be an overthrow? Count me in. It could be that. And it could be that there is still some seed of understanding of even when David was anointed in a similar way. And thinking, here came a prophet who anointed Jehu king of Israel. So when we come back, we're going we're gonna to follow this, and then we're going to also turn back into Second Chronicles. We have to stop here, as much as uh, it's getting very, very interesting. But I've already told you what's going to happen. Jehu is the fastball, and Ahaziah is one of the birds, okay? But let me just ask a couple of things here for observation and application. Let's revisit Elisha's ministry of secrecy. And when I say that, please don't misunderstand me as if he didn't tell anything to anybody at any time. But there are a few of these, and it seems to be more with Elisha than with Elijah. Now, there were some with Elijah when he only helped uh, the one widow, didn't help everybody else. But it seems as if this is becoming of Elisha's ministry. So, Elisha's ministry is not shrouded with secrecy, but the lesson is that God does not always do everything out in the open for all to see. That's the providence of God. 
It's the invisible hand of God that only believers can see because we know who's in control. However, what God does in secret always comes to fruition publicly to the world. And I, the verse that always comes back to me, and we looked at this before, this is Acts chapter 10, verse 40. Would you turn there? This verse, this verse always comes back to me, and I remember when we did the study of the book of Acts, and I came across this verse, it, it was, wow, this is just incredible. Uh, it, it speaks of so much. So here, Peter is preaching, verse 40 of Acts 10, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. It was a bodily resurrection, just like we're going to have. But keep that thought. Not to all people. He could have. But not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So first of all, this is incredible because you would have a lot of atheists say, well, why doesn't God just show it? You know, why doesn't he write write his signature on the sky? Or why doesn't he do this? Well, because that's not always the way God works. If God does it and no one knows about it, it's still true. It's not like, you know, if a tree falls in the woods and the, a man's wife is not there to tell him whether it made sound or not, does it make a sound? That's the second version of it. What God does in secret is real. And he eventually will reveal it. In fact, one of God's best kept secrets in the Old Testament was the church. It's no secret today. We're here. You even knew what time. But in the Old Testament, this idea that he was going to turn from the Gentiles, uh, the, the Jews, to the Gentiles, and he was going to minister to them and bring them in, that was, I mean, you could find seeds of that, but not very clear. And of course, the Jews didn't get it at all. So God, it, it, it's, it's, it becomes God, the sovereign God, to reveal only what he wants to reveal. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 29. Uh, Let me go ahead and read that, Deuteronomy 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. So he does have secret things. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. So Elisha's ministry is not odd or strange. It's in keeping with God's character and God's ministry and God's sovereignty. And we see it once again here with this whole idea why he told him to take it into the inner room. And, and, And with the narrative, you could see why. Because then he came out and then there was that interaction, that verbal irony. And as soon as they heard it, they wanted to make him king. The second thing I want to talk about is the idea of avenging the blood of God's people or avenging the prophet's blood. This makes us think of, doesn't it, of what we studied in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Let's turn there for a moment. This is the idea that God set up a uh, Jehu to be the king 
and he's going to avenge the blood of the prophets from the hand of Jezebel. Well, we come to Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, and this is what we find. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. By the way, there is going to be that time, yea, for sure in the tribulation, and it is going to be a time that you may have to pay with your life for your faith. But that could happen now, and it actually does happen now in some countries around the world. It says, And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now let me first say something here. This is not a bad attitude. They are in heaven and perfected. So this is not a bad attitude. This is something that they're saying so that it's written and recorded and, the God, and God responds. But it's, it's a, it's, and it's not even a bad request. How long? Lord, here we are, and yet you seem to show no vengeance upon those who martyred the people who were sharing your word, preaching the gospel. Verse 11. And there was given to each of them a white robe. Let's stop right there. So that's God for you, isn't it? Calm down. First things first. Take you, give you a white robe. And of course, uh, the symbol of a white robe is the righteousness of Christ that's given on the work of Christ, not the works that they have done. Now we get crowns for our works, but the symbol of the white robe is the righteousness of Christ. So, First things first, this is what's important. What's important, not that you get avenged, but that you are here on the merits of Jesus Christ. And then he says, they were told that they should rest for a little while. You're in the eternal rest. You're in, you're in heaven. They're in heaven. They should rest for a little while until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So God's saying, there's more. There's more in my plan. You know, there's more fastballs, more birds. Um, I'm putting this all timing together. And so the idea is, oh yeah, I'm going to take vengeance, but I'm going to take vengeance for every single one of them, of my children that are martyred. And so we see this about our God, and, and, in, and in a sense, it ought to give us comfort that, you know, God isn't going to just let these things happen and then them go unanswered. That's not our God. He will, he will definitely answer them, and people will answer for their deeds. And God's children who are sharing the word, God's children who are giving the testimony, they are not only protected, but they are also avenged. And then thirdly, as we're thinking about all of this, um, I'm thinking about Ahab here. God makes all wrongs right. He writes them. Okay, and you're thinking of Ahab. So here's, here's Ahab, you know, and he's, he was around for a long time, and he had a lot of influence on his son Ahaziah, then on his other son Joram, he had a lot of influence and a lot went on and a lot of people died and it kept going on and on and on. Lord, where are you? When are you going to right this wrong? Don't you worry. 
God is going to right every wrong. There is a judgment coming. There is a great white throne judgment coming. It's not like God sees sin and evil and just lets it unchecked. But God does the right actions at the right time, all in his sovereign plan, all in his tithing, and evil will be checked. So we get these lessons and many, many more from this this chapter, even though we're only halfway through it, but we'll come back next week and we will uh, talk about these things. Any other thoughts or comments or applications?